So tonight we're looking at um, the Word of God, and we'll do that tonight and next week as well. We'll try to cover several things uh, about the Word of God. And uh, if you've gotten your Bible doctrine book, this is chapter 2. We'll be covering a chapter each week and trying to stay on that, uh, that clear path so you know where we'll be. And um, with that said, let's kind of dive in. When you hear the phrase, the Word of God, what, uh, what comes to mind? Holy. Say again? Holy. Holy? Truth. Truth? All right, anything else? Put all those in the Bible. Put all those in the Bible, that's right. This one's fresh. Thanks. The Word of God uh, is revelation. When we think about the Word of God, we think about uh, one of the words that we all think about is revelation. Not the book revelation, but this is the revelation of God. This is God revealing Himself to man. And uh, He does that in a number of ways. We know that the Word of God uh, fits Jesus, the Incarnation that uh, Christ, the Word of God, is a person. In fact, let's, uh, let me give out some scripture assignments and we'll read these as we go along. Can we do that? Start over here with Jason. He's ready. He pulled his sword first. <laughs> Revelation 19.13. JC, if you'll do John 1 and verse 1 and verse 14. Chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14. Daniel, if you'll do Genesis 1, verse 3, and verse 24. Steve, Psalm 33, verse 6. Linda, Hebrews 1, verse 3. Phil, Genesis 2, 16 through 17. Tony, Genesis 12, verse 1. Vera, Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 20. David, Jeremiah 1, verse 9. Mary, X. Okay, Jean, Exodus 31, 18. Bo, 
Deuteronomy 31, 24 through 26. You want one, Neiman? Yeah. You don't have to. Joshua 24, 26. You want one, Russell? Isaiah 30, verse 8. Paul, thir uh, Jeremiah 30, verse 2. Mark, 1 Corinthians 14, 37. Bob, Deuteronomy 32, 44 through 47. Kevin, Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. And I'm going to stop right there. Okay, the Word of God is person as Jesus Christ. Deut uh, Revelation 19, 13. He is clothed with, a, clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and His name is called the Word of God. Okay, we know that scene in the Revelation, the book of Revelation at the end when Christ appears and He's coming back and He has this name written on Him that says the Word of God. John 1, verse 1 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, we studied that not too long ago as we began our journey in John, and we know, again, talking about the incarnation of Christ. The Word of God is in the person of Christ. The Word of God as speech by God. In other words, God has spoken. Um, the, the, the picture we have in Scripture is God appearing as us, almost, speaking like we're speaking, like I'm speaking right now. Uh, he does that through His decrees. Genesis 1, verse 3 and verse 24. Daniel? Oh, sorry. Now that's the beginning and the end really of, the, of that sequence in, in Genesis chapter 1. But that's a repeating theme all through there. You know, God said, let there be light. God said, let there be an expanse. And the scripture says, and it was, and it did. These are decrees that God has spoken and they're active. You know, they, they cause things to happen when God speaks. Psalm 33 verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made by the breath of His mouth. Okay, Hebrews 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay, so we've got the person of Christ as the word of God. We've got the spoken decrees of God as the word of God. We've also got God speaking... Uh, through personal address, he speaks to people that becomes the word of God for us. For instance, Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, he speaks to Adam. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest eat freely, and of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. In Genesis 12, 1, he speaks to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, and your people, and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. 
okay? Speaking to individuals. In Exodus chapter 3, he spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. What did he say? First command was, take your shoes off before you come close. This is holy ground, right? Then he said what? I want you to go to Pharaoh. Tell Pharaoh to let my people go. So the word of God spoken to individuals. The word of God is... Uh, spoken and creates and causes things to happen. The Word of God through the person who is Christ. Uh, also, He spoke through the prophets. You remember the story of Samuel? When Samuel was, you know, left at the temple with Eli and, uh, and he was awakened at night by a voice saying, Samuel, Samuel. And he got up and he went to Eli thinking Eli was called him and Eli didn't know what was going on. He said, I didn't call you. So he went back. Three times this happened. Finally, Samuel or Eli gets it. He says, the next time this happens, stay where you are and say, here am I, Lord. That the Lord was speaking to him. And that's what he did. And God then began to tell him directly what was going to happen in Israel in the coming days. So he speaks through the prophets. Um, the instances where God does this left no doubt to those who were involved that it was God speaking. And you think about that just a minute. You know, we sometimes uh, in our culture, we, we like to think God's speaking to us and, and there's been some controversy in, in evangelicalism about that, about can people hear God speak to them or does He just limit Himself to speaking through the Word of God? And, and uh, it's one of those things where it can be a little iffy. But when God has spoken in the past... It, he's made. There's been no confusion that God was speaking. Think about when uh, He spoke at the time that Christ, you know, was baptized, uh, or the Mount of Transfiguration, instances like that where He spoke and said, "This is My Son, in whom I'm well uh, well pleased." Everyone there heard something, heard what was going on, and they knew it was the Word of God. They knew God had spoken. So it's not something that's easily confused. Uh, like we might think it would be. It's also important to note that when God speaks, He speaks clearly. He speaks in plain language that human beings can understand. Alright? He wants us to know what He's saying. He doesn't speak in gibberish or some, you know, uh, high and holy language that we can't comprehend. He speaks into, into individuals in plain language. He speaks through them in plain language so that we can understand so the word of God is speech by God um, through his decrees, through his personal address. God's words as speech through human beings. He speaks through people. The, the prophets of old would speak the word of God. Thus says the Lord, they would say. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 20. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. Put my words in his mouth. Uh, you know, but it's not the word of the prophet. It's not the word of Ezekiel. It's not the word of Isaiah. It's God's word coming through them. Jeremiah 1, verse 9. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched on mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, Now, we're talking about specific revelation, particular revelation, where God is, God is speaking a particular message. 
there's also, before I get too far into this, there's also what we call general revelation. Anybody have an idea on what that means? Romans 1. What does that mean? General revelation. What does Romans 1 say? Who said that? Is that you, Kevin? Yeah. What does it say? But he speaks through the creation, and no one will have an excuse. Right. He makes himself known. He reveals himself in creation. When you go home tonight, if it's clear night, if you're like me, you may step out in the backyard or take the dog out or something. And my first instinct, the older I get, the more I do this. I walk out the door, and the first thing I do is I look up. I want to see the stars. I want to see the moon. I want to see what's happening up there. And, and my thoughts are always drawn to, wow, you know? Uh, I'm more amazed by it the older I get. Um, you do a little reading about creation and, the, uh, and all of the, the, you know, space and all those things and just how vast it is and how synchronized everything is. And you say, someone had to do this. And that someone, when I see that, inspires awe in me. All this, this stuff that is clearly there by intention and design speaks to a creator, does it not? General revelation. What Paul was saying there is that there's enough general revelation to convict us that there is a God, okay? To convince us that there is a God. We can't deny His existence just on that thing. If He had never spoken specifically to reveal Himself to us, there would have been enough in all of creation to make us know that there's, there's a higher power, person, creator. So the next one is God's words in written form. Okay, what's that? The Bible, okay? Now all of these merge and overlap, right? The Bible has these different forms of God's word. Um, we think when we think about the Bible in written form, the first instance of that, anybody know? Commandments. The commandments. Very good, Jason. You've been reading ahead. The commandments. What do we know in Exodus? What does it say about the commandments? We know the story. With his, with his finger, right? Doesn't it say that? That was the first time. Yeah. Moses broke the tablets, and he made Moses write it. Yeah, maybe Moses take it down this time, right? Maybe from memory. I don't know. But you're right. But it says God wrote it. God penned it. And so there we have this, this whole new dynamic that an oral culture, that God was writing these things down. And so we have the beginning of what we know as the canon. Okay? Not canon as in you shoot, right? The canon being the, the full embodiment of the Word of God as we have it, the, the list of books that God has penned for us to know. Exodus 31, 18. Who has that? Oh, yeah, me. I thought it was 13. Okay, just a second. Let me find it. Okay. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses at Mount Sinai, He gave him the two tablets of the testimony, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. Hmm, that's pretty clear, right? Deuteronomy 31, 24 through 26. So it was when Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book, and they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, 
that it may be there as a witness against you. Okay. So there, God's beginning to add others to this original group of Ten Commandments. God's starting to add other writings, okay? Written forms of His Word. Isaiah 30, verse 8. Or no, I skipped one. Sorry, Joshua. Uh, this was 24, 26, right? Right, that's right. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there underneath the terebinth that was the sanctuary of the Lord. Okay, Isaiah 30, verse 8. Go now, write it on a tablet for them, and scribe it on a scroll, that, it, that for the days to come it may be an everlasting witness. Jeremiah 30, verse 2. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write all the words which I have spoken to you in a book. 1 Corinthians 14, 37. If anyone considers himself a prophet or spiritual person, he should acknowledge that what I write to you is the Lord's command. Okay, so this is Paul. This is New Testament. And he's saying the things I'm writing to you are the commands of God. So they are the revelation of God himself. I'm writing them down per his instruction. Okay? So what are the benefits? We know this is the Bible. What are the benefits of writing down the Word of God? Well, generations from generations will have it. Okay, yeah, that's right. You can access it any time. You don't have to wait for a special revelation. So it's about accessibility. 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 What about accuracy? Anything else? How about uh, opportunity for repeated examination, study, discussion, so that we understand and apply it better? Okay, if it's in, if it's orally transmitted, it's a little bit more difficult to do that. If it's in written form, you know, there all these things are true, but it also gives us a better opportunity to go back and continue to go back and repeat it, repeat it. It also helps the oral and, and memory uh, of it as well, right? Permanent this, record. There. Sir? Permanent record. Permanent record, right. Okay. So I'm going to say it also is uh, opportunistic for opportunity for examination. Just for writing, but you are listening as we go, so you can write it more legibly. Right? It, it has the potential to be in every known language. Different languages. Good. <coughs> Bruder needed you all when he was writing his book. You know, he only gave us three. <laughs> hmm. These are all good. Okay. What about con is consistency? Is it the same? Or uh, I yeah, probably, permanent, I guess, permanent consistency. So. Probably these two right here would, yeah. would fit there. Okay. All right. The written, the written form of God's Word, the Bible, is our focus for, 
for systematic theology for what we're going to do in here. Um, obviously, you know, we can't, uh, we're not going to hear any new revelation. It's not what we're looking for. We're going to focus on what Scripture says, what God has told us about Himself and about the work that He's doing and how we can organize that uh, important topics, framework that we can understand, get a view of what God's trying to do. Now, uh, shifting gears just a little bit, moving forward, I've used the word canon. So you've probably heard that before, the canon of Scripture. What does that mean? I've already told you, right? It means a list. It's a list of the books that are included, considered, validated even, affirmed as the Word of God, what God has revealed to us in written form. Okay, what we have. How many, how many uh, parts are there in this canon? Okay, 66. Two Testaments, an old and a new. The um, 66 books, and we know that when it was given, it wasn't uh, 66. Books like First and Second Kings were probably just Kings. First and Second Chronicles, just Chronicles. Uh, a lot of the, the breaks, verses, chapters, things of that nature have been added to make it a little easier to navigate and to know where things are. Okay? So when God gave it, He didn't give us chapter and verse necessarily. We're good with that. Um, 66 books within this canon, and I want us to talk just a little bit about how we came to have those. 39 in the old, and 27 in the new, right? Um... Scripture is nourishment, you know, for our souls. If we're followers of Christ, the Word of God is what we consume. It's what we eat. It's what, it's what uh, makes us like Christ. It grows us and develops us and strengthens us. So it's very important, is it not? If, if you're a believer in Christ, this is critically important. A lot of things you can do without, you can't do without the Word of God. So we need to uh, treat it as such. Deuteronomy 32, 44 through 47. Who had that? Bob? Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to, his, his, to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. But what's he saying? He's saying that all the words are important. <coughs> every word's important. Every word there has a purpose <coughs> and a plan. God's put it there for a reason. And we want to know what those words are because... If it's nourishment for our souls, we can't be faithful to God in obeying His Word if we don't have the right Word, can we? And if we're going to uh, be conformed to the image of Christ, that's what we need. So the fact that we have an understanding and that we've critiqued it and understand that this really is the Word of God is important for us. 
so we can stand on it with confidence. Uh, to add or subtract from God's word would hinder people from obeying him fully. Deuteronomy 4, 2. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the command of the Lord your God that I give to you. So we won't have confidence that this is God's word for us. So thinking about the Old Testament canon, 39 books. Where did we get the idea of a canon? Well, Scripture bears that witness. We mentioned the Ten Commandments. That's where it began, where God began to, uh, He wrote the commandments down, and that began this process of compiling a, a written document or written documents that would be uh, guiding and leading His people. Deuteronomy 31, 24 through 26. Who has that? Anybody? Did I give that to anybody? Okay. Did we just read that one? No, we read... Um, James, can you look that one up? Deuteronomy 31, 24 through 26. We did read that one. Moses added to the collection of writings. You know, he began to add to the Ten Commandments, not just settling for those. All right. Already read it. Yeah, all right. Uh, we see that in Exodus, we see it in Numbers, we see it in Deuteronomy. It's repeated uh, multiple times where uh, there's reference to other writings being gathered together and added to. So these things began to accumulate, all right? Uh, the prophets also contributed. First, uh, First Samuel 10, 25. Are we back around, Jason? First Samuel 10, verse 25. J.C., 1 Chronicles 29.29. Scott, 2 Chronicles 26.22. And that'll, that'll cover us for a minute. Okay, 1 Samuel 10.25. Okay. Then Samuel told the people the, ordinance of, the, ordinance, the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote them in the book and placed it before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his house. So what's happening as, as we move through this uh, these prophets, these men that God has visited upon, that God's using for His work, and, and we'll talk more about this uh, next week, about inspiration of Scripture and how that works, or, or maybe a little bit later in this discussion, that God inspired men, um, that He breathed out the words that He wanted them to write down that were important for us to understand. Now, the, the thing that's really... Uh, puzzling sometimes for us is that we look at some of the things in the Bible like genealogies or some of the things that get repeated you know in the in the Gospels the synoptic Gospels uh, you get similar stories told and you think you know with so much I mean John ends by saying that there were so many things that Jesus did and said that if if the uh, if they'd all been written down the world itself would not contain what he did. So you're thinking, okay, if you've got this limited space that you're trying to reveal yourself, why do you repeat these things? Well, Scripture indicates to us, we're told over and over and over, that God is orchestrating this, and so there's reason and purpose behind it. We don't always understand why it is, but we defer to his judgment that he has reason and purpose to do that. But these these documents, as, these, as God moves upon them and inspires them with a message for the people, then they're, they're transferring that and writing it down so that it does take on, uh, maintain its accuracy and consistency and becomes accessible for future generations. You know, that began to occur in them that 
You know, we have an oral culture. We tell stories, and those get passed down. And, and we still, when we go to Senegal in West Africa to minister over there, it's an oral culture, right, Paul? They don't even have a written language. You know, when we write things down for ourselves, like their language that we're trying to learn, we, have to, we had to develop that language, you know, the written language. Um, so they began to put these things down so these things would stand the test of time and not be varied and changed. And obviously it was God's leading to do just exactly that. The Hebrew language knows no vowels. <laughs> yeah, yeah, figure that one out. <laughs> uh, first Chronicles 29, 29. Now the acts of David the king, first and last. Behold, they are written in the book of Samuel the seer, in the book of Nathan the prophet, in the book of Gad the seer. Second Chronicles 26, 22. Now the rest of the Acts of Uzziah, from first to last, Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, wrote. So you, you find this references all through the Bible, you know, where this one wrote this down, this one wrote that down, and they're, all, they're doing this moved by God, and God is saying it to the people so that they know that it's there, so that it, it doesn't just get swept under the rug or brushed off or it's not important. Um, prophetic editions ceased finally about 435 B.C., when silence occurred and everyone knew that God had stopped speaking there wasn't a prophet being used to speak and so the, the additions to what we would consider to be the Old Testament canon stopped at about this point okay we finish up with Malachi and Esther and Nehemiah and some of those books finally get put down on you know parchment and, and then it just stops Nobody's speaking the Word of God anymore. There's no one uh, writing the Word of God. And so the Old Testament canon draws to a close. Now, it was 500 years before the next speaking of God began to occur with the arrival of John the Baptist, okay? Uh, 400 years, anyway, 460 or 70 years. Now, for you and I, that's back to about the days of Martin Luther. So if Martin Luther had you know, been the last time we heard thus saith the Lord and we hadn't heard anything from God, that's how long it would have been for the people of Israel that they went without hearing from God. And so the Old Testament kind of drew to a close. There were other historical writings that were compiled later, but none were deemed worthy or uh, authoritative to be included in the canon. And when you, you get to the New Testament and Jesus shows up on the scene, you never find any recorded disputes between Jesus and the Jews over the content of the Old Testament scriptures. They might have debated about a lot of things, but that wasn't one of them. There was an agreement over what was considered to be the Old Testament. So, and we're going to talk in just a minute about how the church began to recognize, you know, what was of God and what wasn't, because we're going to see an increase of materials. Now, um, Anybody in here got a Bible with the Apocrypha in it? Good. That's a good sign. <laughs> you know what the Apocrypha is? Non-canonical books for Protestants. The, uh, the Catholic Church will have them in their, in their Bible. Uh, it's thir in it 13. There's 13 of them. First and second Maccabees, uh, Esdras, uh, uh, Baruch, Ecclesiasticus, 
uh, Book of Wisdom, uh, Judith, uh, Tobit, um, and some others. All right? You pass. I'll pass the rest of them. Anyway, it was a collection of books included in the canon by the Roman Catholic Church and uh, excluded from the canon by the Protestant Church. The Jews never accepted them as Scripture. All right? Opinions were divided in the early history of the church to include them or not to include them. The earliest Christian evidence is decidedly against viewing the Apocrypha as Scripture, but the use of the Apocrypha gradually increased in some parts of the church until the time of the Reformation. And in fact, the reason that the, uh, the Catholic Church recognized them and included them was in a, as a reaction to Martin Luther and the Reformation. Okay? The, uh, because a lot of these books have references to praying for the dead, prayers for the dead, things like that, things that we would consider certainly not of God. You know, it's not consistent with the rest of Scripture. They, um, they may be helpful books for the church from offering some historical things, but they're, they're often very uh, unreliable when it comes to uh, geographical things, historical things, and doctrinally they, they tend to be all over the place. Um, E.J. Young notes this, and you probably read this in, uh, in Grudem's book. This is what he says. He says, There are no marks in these books which would attest the divine origin. Both Judith, Judith and Tobit contain historical, chronological, and geographical eras. The books justify falsehood and deception and make salvation depend upon works of merit. Ecclesiasticus, Ecclesiasticus and Wisdom of Solomon inculcate a morality based upon expediency. Wisdom teaches the creation of the world out of pre-existent matter. Ecclesiasticus teaches that the giving of alms makes atonement for sin. In Baruch, it is said that the God hears the prayers of the dead, and in 1 Maccabees, there are historical and geographical eras. It was not, and this is Grudem, he says it was not until 1546 at the Council of Trent that the Roman Catholic Church officially declared the Apocrypha to be part of the canon, with the exception of First and Second Esdras and the Prayer of Manasseh. It is significant that the Council of Trent was the response of the Roman Catholic Church to the teachings of Martin Luther and the rapidly spreading Protestant Reformation. And the books of the Apocrypha contain support for Catholic teaching of prayers for the dead and justification by faith plus works, not by faith alone, in affirming the Apocrypha as within the canon Roman Catholics would hold that the church has the authority to constitute a literary work as scripture. Go back to our discussion last week about the Pope and his new penchant to play God. While Protestants have held that the church cannot make something to be scripture, but can only recognize what God has already caused to be written as his own words. So, moving into the New Testament canon. The New Testament canon begins with the writings of whom? What? Mark. Okay, the apostles. Alright. The apostles were used to write. The apostles and the prophets are on par with one another. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that there are gifts given to the church. It's a classic passage that you've heard me reference before and how the church needs to see itself and function and ministry. And it says in uh, Four, chapter, chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 11 and following, that the Lord has given gifts to the church, 
Those gifts are the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, and pastors or teachers. And the um, we, we know we have pastors and evangelists today, but we do not have any more apostles or prophets in the proper sense. Now, a prophet, you may use prophet in today's um, culture as a, um, a general reference. In other words, you might say, well, our pastor preaches pro prophetically. In other words, he, he preaches, thus saith the Lord. So he preaches with a prophetic ring to what he's saying. But not a prophet in the sense that there's any new revelation. Okay? Nobody's bringing any new revelation. There are no new apostles. Apostles, by definition, were people who were witnesses to the ministry, especially the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and were entrusted with carrying uh, the, uh, the gospel into all parts of the world and compiling the New Testament. Prophets compiled it in the Old Testament. Apostles in the New Testament. So, why are they considered gifts to the church? Because now we still have their influence through what? Through the written word. That's right. Through the Bible. They still continue to bless the church because this is a foundation upon which we stand. So anything that any evangelist or any pastor like myself says to edify, to, to equip, to sanctify the church comes from what God has already provided through their ministry. And so that's why those are given as gifts to the church to continue the growth of the church. That's what that passage goes on to say is that so that we all might grow up into uh, maturity, all right, and unity, ministering to one another as each person supplies the body of Christ ministers unto itself. Uh, I was uh, having a discussion with somebody, somebody uh, just in the last day or two think it was anybody in here and they were asking me about spiritual gifts and uh, spiritual gifts we'll get to that in this discussion but a spiritual gift uh, a lot of people take these spiritual gift inventories you know it's like a personality uh, assessment or tool and, and that's fine that gives you a beginning point but you, but it's not the gospel okay it's not inspired and it's not the final word when I teach about spiritual gifts I say spiritual gifts are a combination of things working in your life. The, the inventory is a good place to start, but also you need to be looking at, you know, what's my passion? What, how's, what does God... I mean, you may have a spiritual gift to be an administrator. And you say, well, that means i got to work in the, you know, the finance team or the building and grounds team or somewhere, you know. No, every ministry needs administrating, right? So you may have a passion for children's ministry, but a gift for administration. So now you're putting those two things together in a formula to say, okay, this is how I'm wired. The third thing is what do other believers, other serious Christians, what do they see in me? Okay? And what's my experience? What have I done in the past? And what have I discovered about myself? That these are things I do well, these are things I don't do well, these are things I, I'm gratified in, these are things I'm not. So you bring all those things together. Now, uh, when I was in Oklahoma years ago in a church, we gave a spiritual gifts inventory to everybody in our church one Sunday evening. We got them together, had dinner, and did this. Two things happened that night that absolutely petrified me as a pastor. Uh, the first one was I found out that, well, not one petrified me and one uh, 
uh, vindicated me, okay? I would tell, I told a church years ago that I did not have the spiritual gift of mercy. And there was shock and awe. Uh, there were people ready to fire me. How could we have a pastor that doesn't have a gift of mercy? And I said, well, I'm only one person in the church. So when we took the spiritual gifts inventory at this church in Oklahoma, we discovered something interesting. 65% of the people out of almost 200 that took the exam had mercy as a primary spiritual gift. So now what does that tell us? And I asked them this question. What does that tell us? I was in the right place. <laughs> I was in the right place. There's enough mercy to go around. There's plenty of mercy. There's more than enough mercy for, for all those people to minister to everyone who doesn't have it. So I said, is, why is it important that the pastor have it? The only way that it's really critically important that the pastor have it is if you're expecting him to do it all. Right? If you're expecting him to be the only dispenser of mercy, then yeah, it would be critically important that he doesn't have it. But if you look around and say, we've got 65% of our membership has this as a gift. Let the dogs loose. You know, let them, let them work that gift and the body's got more mercy working than it needs. Okay? Who does it, what does it matter who has it? The other thing I found out out there was that I had almost 70% of the church had the gift of administration. This one petrified me. You know what an administrator is, right? He's a chief. She's a chief. You know? A lot of chiefs. I'm thinking, no followers. Big problem. Big problem. But you know how God works? When we looked at that, the bottom line was that we were a mobile church in the strictest sense of the word. We met in the junior high for worship on Sundays in Sunday school. We had office offices in a uh, rented space and we had Wednesday night at the community center uh, because we couldn't use the gym at the school on Wednesday night for basketball practice and we were doing Awana so we had to move so we had three locations each week and we had to set up every Sunday in the school we couldn't use any classrooms we had to use only hallways and so we had a they let us have a storage building out back and we had standing dividers we had carpets rolled up we had children's chairs and things like that and we had people that would show up every Sunday and set the whole thing up including the gymnasium for worship with with our chairs and sound system and all those things now you know what that would have been like if we didn't have 70 percent of our body that were administrators it have been a nightmare you know if we'd had five administrators trying to get that done but because we had all these people and a lot of them were college professors Deans at the college, these people, if you met them went where they worked, you'd be really impressed with them. On Sunday morning, they showed up in their sweatshirts and their jeans, and they were out there working. They administrated, and they, and they did. And that church functioned five years that way and then built a building debt-free in the process because of the way God put it together. Now, the, the body of Christ is designed to work that way. And this church has everything it needs to excel at what God's called us to do. What we need to do is let the dogs run, right? That's what needs to happen. Part of that's figuring out where we go. All right, New Testament canon. So Ephesians 4 is important for us. The apostles were witnesses of the resurrection on par with the prophets. All the New Testament books have apostolic authorship except for five. 
Out of the 27, there are five that do not have direct apostolic authorship. You want to take a shot at who they are? Mark. Mark. Somebody's been studying. Luke. Luke. apostolic authorship directly. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and wrote the book of Acts. And Luke was a travel close companion uh, to the Apostle Paul. So the apostles recognized his writing due to that close relationship and essentially it falls under the you know under the, uh, the credibility that would have been assigned to Paul. Mark, John Mark was a close associate of the Apostle Peter. Okay? And so, same thing happens there. Because of that, you know, his work was accepted on those grounds. Jude, brother of Jesus, but it was questionable. But he was a close associate to his other brother, James, who was an apostle, and also the Lord's brother. So, you know, he got, he got in, shall we say. Family time. Family ties, you know. Um, and Hebrews, we're not sure about. Some people early on claim that Paul wrote Hebrews, uh, but in recent years, there's been a lot less inclination to do that. There's too many dissimilarities in the, uh, the way that it's put together and some of the other things that we see in Paul's writings that don't appear in Hebrews. But the one thing that stands out with Hebrews is that when you read it, you can't deny the deity of it. I mean, the divinity of it. I mean, it's just incredible. Hebrews is an incredible book, and you you sense the speaking of God as you read it, and this is what the church recognized, and so these were the ones that didn't have direct apostolic authorship that they allowed in and accepted. In the Old Testament, you've got a book like Esther that does not even mention the name of God, and yet it's part of the canon. And I'll challenge you on this. If I hadn't told you that and I'd say, go home and read Esther tonight and you read the book of Esther and then I said, you know, God's name's not mentioned in it one time, you would argue with me because God's fingerprints are all through the book. And you would say, no, that's not right. You go back and look, his name's not mentioned one time. But God speaks through and, and that's what we need to look at um, mostly when it comes to recognizing what's in the canon. All right. Oh, bad buddy. The early church used a combination of factors to affirm authority of writings of Scripture. Three things. Apostolic endorsement or writing. Consistency with the rest of Scripture. In other words, doctrinally it had to be compatible with the rest of Scripture. It couldn't be contrary to it. All right? That's why a lot of the books in the Apocrypha that's why uh, some of these newer books like they make their appearance. You know, you hear about them every once in a while. It's usually around Easter time, you know. The other gospel, you know, by Thomas. Um, you know, just go in. Grudem mentions this in his book about someone uh, bringing up the book of Thomas. You know, what about the book of Thomas? And he said, oh. He, oh, he got called by a reporter. He got called by a reporter uh, who was uh, a feminist. 
and she's complaining because the book of Thomas ought to be included in the canon. And he said, oh, okay, well, I happen to have a copy of it. Let me read you a verse. And he reads a verse, and the verse reads something like this. Well, we know that women are, are not, cannot be saved because they are just women. They're not men. And so uh, I'm going to pray that all women can become men, and therefore they can have, I mean, some gibberish like that. And he read it, and she said, Oh, I see. <laughs> Doesn't fit, does it? Doesn't fit with the rest of the canon. A.D. 367, the 39th Paschal letter of Athanasius contained an exact list of 21 New Testament books. This was the list accepted by the churches in the eastern part of the Mediterranean world. 30 years later, A.D. 397, the Council of Carthage, representing churches in the western Mediterranean world, affirmed these 27 books. And these are the earliest final lists of our present day canon. Note the actual writing, the actual writing of the New Testament canon occurred in the first century. It was 300 years later when the church finally said, this is the canon. So what does that imply? That implies that they were deliberate. You know, these letters came down from the apostles and were sent to churches and they were read like sermons to the congregation. And the church <clears throat> voted, and I use that term loosely, but they voted by the work of God in their lives. They recognized the hand and the voice of God coming through those. And that's how these writings become valid uh, revelations of God. Um, that they, the church for 300 years heard these, listened to these, and recognized the consistency of God's message and the power of God radiating through these, changing lives, you know, spurring the church onward. And, and based upon the, the ridership, you know, who was writing them, where they came from, the, the validity of all these things all coupled together to, for the church to say, this is the counsel that we have from God. This is the revelation we have from God. It fits all, it, it, it ticks all of the boxes, you know, coming down. Does that make sense? Is that confusing to anybody? All right. Should we expect any additions in the future? No. What? No. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2 speak to Jesus being spoken to us in these last days. Clearly talking about, you know, what went on before through the prophets, through the apostles even, and that Christ is the final exclamation point on God's revelation, that there's nothing more to come. Revelation 22, 18 and 19, isn't that what he says at the very end? Anyone who adds to this book or takes away from this book is under a curse. This is it. Closed it up. It's sealed. It's done. You know, no more to come from God. Uh, Adrian Rogers used to say, and he probably swiped it from some of those uh, even older guys, but he would say, if it's <clears throat> new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. Okay? It stood the test of time. The authority of the Word. Wow. I can't do this tonight. We're just now to where we should have been to start with. It's not good. We, we may have to. I'm going to stop there. You have any questions? Yeah. All right. It's not a question, but 
I had a, a discussion with a couple of the Mormons that came by, and you know about uh, their book, the Mormon book, and I, I quote, quoted the uh, passage from uh, Revelation. Nothing could be added. Yeah, but it doesn't say about the Bible. It talks only about the Revelation, Book of Revelation. And some people believe that. Even Grudem says that early on in his ministry, he believed that was true, that it was just applying to the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. But later on, as he has grown in his understanding, he does believe it's applied to the whole Bible. That, that that's the exclamation point at the end that says nothing else is to be added or taken away from it. Which also has great implication for those genealogies that you don't like to read. Or over there in Judges, you know, where that lady drove that stake through that guy's head while he was sleeping, you know, in the tent. Puts everything in perspective, doesn't it? God wanted us to know that. Why did he want us to know that? Anything else? Yes, sir? So when you were talking about going out in your backyard, uh, this guy, looking up at the sky, kind of relate this to you. When I was flying helicopters in the Marine Corps, and when we first started flying night vision goggles, the first time I put them on, you know, you're, you're looking out at the sky and you just see a little bit of light out there. But what they do is they amplify the light in the sky. And you put those things on in the sky, it just comes to life. Yeah. And then when you're out in the desert, it's even better. And you see shooting stars or falling stars. It's, it was incredible. Yeah. I was on the ground when I put them on. I wasn't flying with them yet. <laughs> but I, it was just, it, and I just couldn't help but think how can you reject or not think that this wasn't created? Yeah. Well, my wife is a nurse, and Russell can appreciate this. She has said for years when we have these discussions, she said, you know, if I ever had any doubt about a creator and about God, when I went through school and studied the human body and all the how it works and things, she says, how can anybody deny that there's a creator and this is by... I said, yeah, it just happened. It blew something blew up, and this is what happened, you know. One more thing: when I was a kid, I was probably about seventeen. I had a cousin that's a couple years younger than me, and he he'd never been to the beach. And so we were going to the beach for vacation, and my mom and dad said, "You want to ask David to go with us?" I said, "Ah, sure. You know, if you take care of him, and I don't have to, I'll be good with that." <laughs> but anyway, we took him, and and you know, I didn't know what was going on with them, but in their minds, they're thinking. He's never seen this before. This is going to be good, you know. So we go down to the beach, and he's standing there, and my mom was kind of waiting around a few minutes, and she said, so, David, what do you think? And he was standing there looking out, and he said, I thought it would be bigger. <laughs> <laughs> and I think about that a lot, you know, because we look at the earth, and we think in creation, but the earth is just, you know, it's so small compared to all the rest of it. When... When you start doing the figures about going across the solar system, you know, traveling at the speed of light, which is really fast, isn't it, Bo? It's really fast. Um, and, and it takes hundreds of thousands of years to get from this point to that, and you still, that's only one solar system, and there's thousands of them, and you start going, my goodness, how could you begin to think that, you know, that this just happened? You know, that there isn't somebody that put it all together and, and how big he must be, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we'll do it again next week.